Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article that had this title, You Are What You Binge. And it began this way, pediatricians are growing increasingly concerned about an explosion in facial and vocal tics in teenagers, especially among teenage girls. According to the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society, as well as several journals, one being a journal in the UK, case numbers in Canada, the US, the UK, Germany, and Australia have skyrocketed over the last year. They've called it a parallel pandemic to COVID-19. What they find is that a significant number of these teenage girls report spending a lot of time on social media, and particularly uh, TikTok. And on TikTok, particularly uh, watching those who place videos of themselves who themselves have Tourette's, which bring about facial tics or other kind of medically caused tics. According to researchers in the UK, the TikTok channel hashtag Tourette's has 2.5 billion views as of last February. It's 2.5 billion views. What doctors and psychologists have found interesting is that the teenage population, and particularly females, that demonstrate these tics, many of them do not have the neurological causes that those who experience Tourette's on a medical basis have. In other words, there's certainly those who experience Tourette's medically, neurologically, and that results in various social or facial tics. But they find that many of these females who are experiencing these same behaviors, their tics are demonstrably very similar, yet they don't have sort of the foundational neurological causes behind those who are officially diagnosed with Tourette's. Uh, some of the some psychologists and social, sociologists have called this mass sociogenic illnesses. In other words, you're exposed to behaviors of others in social settings and platforms, and you actually begin to demonstrate those same behaviors. Uh, that applies to things even like school shootings or suicides, where traumatic events like that have shown to spread almost by simply a matter of social contagion. Wall Street Journal reporter Abigail Schreier described a similar phenomenon in her book, Irreversible Damage, about teenage girls with sudden onset gender dysphoria, that those behaviors tend to spread significantly among certain populations, especially through the avenues of social media. All that to simply say, as human beings, we're impressionable people. We're shaped, we're formed, even by 2.5 billion people watching a TikTok video of those who portray their symptoms of Tourette's, that spreads. We are shaped 
more than we know by the media that we consume and what we expose ourselves to simply by watching video, by consuming media. Whatever we expose ourselves to or consume, we become shaped by. It forms our lives. You know, back in the spring, we had a series called Imago Day, in which we said that we, our humanity needs to be tended to, that we're not simply kind of chunks of wood that are solid or chunks of wood that just have this definition to ourselves, but instead, we're actually shaped as human beings. We need to tend to our humanity. Uh, we're in a series called Jesus Continued from John chapter 14 through 16, and in this series, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's challenging them, and he's saying to them that the Holy Spirit is going to come, and that their lives are going to continue to be shaped by the presence of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was here on earth for a season of time, and before he left, he made it clear, even though I'm leaving you physically, my presence is going to continue to be with you so that your lives can be shaped and formed and molded by the gospel. Uh, we're going to look mostly at just some closing verses of John chapter 14 that we didn't get to yet. Uh, we'll probably tiptoe into John chapter 15, uh, but probably won't actually make too much progress in John chapter 15 because just want to clean up some stuff from chapter 14. We said uh, last week and a couple of weeks ago that John 14 through 16 is largely about the presence of God with us that continues with us, even though Jesus is no longer with us. His presence continues through the Holy Spirit. We said that scripture is largely about the presence of God. And so to kind of portray kind of a, a what that looks like grand scale, uh, last week, we introduced this chart and had somebody else actually draw this and write on it during the week. So that's why it's actually legible uh, rather than me doing it. Uh, but, but here's the deal. We said, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Trinity, even before the time of creation. That kind of is mind-blowing. We can't get our heads wrapped around it. But the Trinity... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God exists in one essence. There's one essence of the divine, and yet that divine essence exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they exist even before creation, before the beginning of what we know as time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist. Sometimes people think that Jesus didn't really exist until he was born in Bethlehem's manger, or that the Holy Spirit didn't exist until we find him in John chapter 14. No, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all exist prior to creation, prior to the beginning of time. Well, the Trinity actually engages in the act of creation, which kind of means this as well. God did not create us because he was bored, because he was lonely, because he didn't have anything to do, God actually created human beings to participate in the joyous relationship of his Trinitarian nature. Not, not that we're God, 
But God is social. God is relational. God delights in relationship. And so he created human beings to enjoy and participate in the relationship with the Trinity, with the Trinity, with the divinity. So first thing in our timeline is created presence. You were created. I was created to enjoy presence with God, to enjoy the delight and joy of the Trinity, to enjoy and delight in the existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, obviously something has gone wrong. And in Genesis, we are told that Adam and Eve, rather than simply enjoying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything that was provided for them, kind of said, hey, we're self-providers. We can blaze our own trail. We can provide life for ourselves. We don't need the relationship with the Trinity to produce life. We'll produce life for ourselves. So they blazed their own trail. That resulted in separated presence. We're separated from the presence of God. As a physical demonstration of that, Adam and Eve were actually put outside the garden. It's not because God was mean or nasty. That simply was a natural result of their choice. God created the garden. Adam and Eve said, hey, we don't really need God to exist for ourselves. And so they were put out of the garden simply as a statement that, yes, this is what it looks like to choose life apart from God. And it really doesn't exist apart from God. Uh, That's the state that we are presently in. We're separated from God. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is at work through the people of Israel, largely the nation of Israel, to sort of bring a reminder to the earth of of his presence that he hasn't simply given up the project, that it's not simply going to end here, but that God is up to something grander and greater to sort of bring about the reestablishment of his presence with human beings. Well, that takes a major step forward. When Jesus comes down from heaven, we call that the first coming. We're going to be celebrating that in just you know, a couple of months. Jesus is born in Bethlehem's major. That's the first advent. That's the first coming of Jesus. Jesus comes and he dwells on earth with us in flesh and blood. Second person of the Trinity actually shows up on planet earth in flesh and blood. The reason he shows up is to do something about this, is to do something about the separated presence of God. Well, eventually Jesus dies on a cross. And where we're looking at in John chapter 14 through 16 literally happens right here. It literally happens on the evening that Jesus is betrayed and then he's goes into the crucifixion. It happens literally hours before Jesus goes to the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes on himself the curse of sin, the darkness of sin. He he takes on himself the evil and wickedness, not only in the world at large, but also in our personal lives, so that the presence of God can be redeemed and restored. Because what separates us from God is is not necessarily something physical. What separates us from God is something spiritual, and that is God is holy, 
we're sinful, we have darkness, we have evil in ourselves, we don't measure up to God's expectations, we fall far short of the glorious purposes that he created us for, and therefore we're separate. Jesus takes on himself that curse. He takes on himself the separation that we as human beings created between ourselves and God. Jesus didn't create any separation between God. We created our own separation, but Jesus takes our separation on himself so that there's a redeemed and restored presence. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead, demonstrating that he is victorious over evil. He is victorious over darkness. He is victorious over sin and death. And then he ascends into heaven. A lot of what he's talking about in John chapter 14, verse 16, and verse 316 is happening right here. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey guys, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I've been with you for a couple of years. There's about three years between here and, I'm, I'm sorry, actually there's, Jesus was probably about 28 years old. Uh, so there's about 28, 30 years between here and here. For, but about three years, Jesus is connecting with his disciples. He's with them. He's teaching them. And he says, hey guys, uh, pretty soon I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm not going to be physically present with you anymore, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to come and I'm going to continue to be with you and present with you through the Holy Spirit. Our message series is called Jesus Continued. Because even though Jesus ascends, he says, my Holy Spirit will come the third person of the Trinity will be present with you to continue my presence and indwell you. And so you and I live sort of somewhere in this space and time. We're not sure where, but the Holy Spirit indwells us. Uh, by the way, this is called Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. It's, it's 50 days after Jesus is raised from the dead. And then also... We know that at the end of what we know as time, there will be fulfilled presence, that Jesus will come again a second time. There will be a second coming. There will be a new creation, a new heaven and new earth, and God's presence will once again be with those who have trusted in the separation that Jesus has taken on himself. And here's the cool thing about the new heaven and new earth. It's actually not going to be fully like the original one because the original one was vulnerable. The original one was vulnerable to separation. The scripture makes it clear that when the new heaven and new earth are here, it will not have the vulnerability of separation that the first creation had. And so this creation was susceptible to, to pain, to hardship, to grief, to sorrow, to sadness, if Humanity chose to separate themselves from God. Well, we did, and so there is hardship, pain, grief, evil, violence, brutality, all of that stuff in our world. But Scripture says that this new creation, because it's based on the person of Jesus, none of those vulnerabilities will be there. In other words, we won't have to worry about whether this whole cycle is going to repeat itself. And so that's the background for where we've been and kind of where we're gone. And just to kind of clean up a couple of verses from John chapter 14, the end. Uh, we didn't cover a few of the verses, so we're just going to dive into verse 25. 
um, to go kind of quickly through the end. And then again, we'll just kind of like tiptoe into John chapter 15. Jesus says in verse 25, all this have I spoken with while still with you, but the advocate we mentioned last week, that the advocate is one who comes along beside the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice that the three persons of the Trinity come together right there in that single verse. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Jesus is referring to himself. Earlier in verse 11, just a reminder, Jesus says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And so all throughout John 14, you have this idea of the Trinity, the three personness of God in one essence and one being. He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We dove into that a little bit last week. First thing, just to kind of cap off John chapter 14, we said we live in the swirl of divine Trinitarian activity. We live in the swirl of divine Trinitarian activity. Friends, we live in a world that's packed with spiritual meaning. Your little life is not just your little life. Your little story is not just your little story. Your story is important. Your story is real. Why? Because it belongs to a world that God has created and where God is at work. Wherever you're at right now, whatever circumstance that is that you're going through, your life is meaningful. Why? Because your life happens in a world that's packed and jammed full with the swirl of divine Trinitarian activity. God has breathed life into your lungs. You're a human being created in the image of this Trinitarian God. Your life is not just a dot. Your life is not just a blip. Your circumstances are not just accidental. Your life is part of this grand swirl of Trinitarian divine activity. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. It matters. Secondly, there's also more than what meets the eye. Now, listen to verse 28. We didn't really get into that too much last week, so let me just dive into that. Jesus says, you heard me say, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the God Father is greater than I. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've heard me say that I'm going to be going away. He's referring to his ascension. He says, you would actually, if you love me, he doesn't really directly say that they don't love him, but he says, if you love me, if you saw the big picture, if you really understood, you would actually be glad that I'm going away. Well, there's a couple reasons for that that he mentions. Number one is that it's going to bring about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to continue to be with us. But also, when Jesus was on earth, he himself was in some way separated from the Father's presence. Uh, Not in terms of sin and darkness like we are, but Scripture says that when Jesus came to earth, he gave up the glory, the honor, the wonders of being in the glorious presence of the Father in heaven. And so he says, like, man, like for me to go back to that is kind of cool. And he said, like, if you just understood that, you would actually be happy for me. Here's what I want you to understand. 
The disciples were looking at Jesus' ascension and going away from them, kind of from the standpoint of what they thought would be best for them. As they looked at their lives, they could not conceive of how it could possibly be that Jesus leaving them physically could be good. That, that those categories just could not fit in their minds. Jesus, how can it be that you leaving us is actually good? To be honest, it was like that kind of stinks for us. They've hung out with him for three years. And so they're looking at reality. They're looking at reality through the people of what they think would be good for them. And Jesus said, man, like if you really love me, if you're really delighted in me, you would understand that there's a bigger picture going on here. You'd be excited that I'm actually going back into the glorious presence of my Father. You'd be excited that the Holy Spirit is actually going to come and indwell you, and he's going to be my continued presence in you, and through you, I will even have a continued presence in the world. Here's what I want you to understand. How many times do we not understand that there's more than what meets the eye? For them, they just took it on surface level. Man, like Jesus is going, how can that possibly make any, how can that possibly be good? You ever like been a little confused with the way that God operates? Like if I asked you to raise your hand, every hand would go up, right? Like, of course we are. And, and why is that? It's because we look at reality through our little people. We look at reality through the lens of what we think would be good for us what we think would be good for others around us. God looks at the lens of circ the, the circumstances through the lens of something much greater, something much grander, which simply means this. If God's not making sense to you right now, it didn't make sense to his disciples either when Jesus said he was going to leave. But God was working through a grander picture, and sometimes you've got to trust that God is working from a grander picture that you may not understand what in the world is God doing in my life? How can this possibly be good? And if you evaluate what's happening in your life according to your circumstances and what you think is good, if you just look at life by what meets your eye, you're actually going to miss what God is doing because God is doing something much grander than what meets your eye. And I just love it. When he challenges his disciples and said, man, like if you guys just had a little bit bigger vision, if you were a little more God-centric in how you see things, if you actually looked at things a little bit more from the perspective that I have, your attitude would be different. Friends, that's just who we are. We kind of look at things from our little perspective. We kind of look at things on the basis of our evaluation. And because of that, Jesus, you kind of like miss the big picture of what God is up to. So here's the deal, friends. Take a deep breath. Exhale. And realize that even though it may not make sense to you, God is at work. He's doing something that's more glorious He's orchestrating things on the basis of more than what meets your eye or my eye. It's grander. It's more beautiful. There's a bigger plan that God has in mind. And you live in the swirl of divine Trinitarian activity, and you've got to trust that God 
has the big picture in mind. Lastly, God's work of redemption is a cosmic drama. This is pretty cool too. At the very the final verses of John chapter 14, here's what it says. <clears throat> I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. In other words, I'm telling you ahead of time because that way you know that what I'm going to say is, is what was true. I will say not I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. Now, periodically throughout Scripture, uh, the prince of the world, or that title is given to Satan, which simply means this. It doesn't mean Satan is the ultimate ruler. Uh, Satan is not God's counterpart. It's not as though, like, God is omniscient and omnipresent and infinite and eternal, and, and Satan is too, and Satan's just, it's not as though Satan is sort of like the bad force and God is the, the, the good force. No, Satan is subservient to God. We're going to find out that in just a minute. But what Scripture does say is this, that Satan has given a significant amount of latitude, a significant amount of freedom, and that in one sense, that as well is somehow going to work to God's honor and glory. I don't know how. I don't quite get that. If, If I had to vote, I would say, man, God, Keep Satan on a little bit of a shorter leash. Allow him to do less destruction. That would, so I don't understand all of the presence of evil in our world. That's where I realize I'm looking through a small peephole and God sees the big picture. But at the same time, God does, the scripture does say that Satan is given a significant amount of influence in our world. But here's what's come next. Here's what's encouraging. He says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of the world is coming. That sounds kind of negative. Then he says, he has no hold over me. Like, yeah, he might be the prince of the world, but he has no authority over God. He has no control over over the, the true grand picture of things. Yes, God may allow him to win some skirmishes. And again, I don't fully understand what that looks like, but one thing is sure. God is not Satan, or Satan is not God's equal. Jesus says, Satan has no hold over me, <clears throat> but he comes, listen to this, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Now, here's what's weird. Uh, I can tell you this. That's not why Satan is coming in Satan's mind. In Satan's mind, in the prince of the world's mind, he is coming so that humanity will continue to be separated from God. Satan's idea is, I want to totally derail God's plan of reconciling human beings back to himself. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes and he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He tries to get Jesus off of God's game plan. He tries to get him off of God's plan to bring reconciliation to humanity. That's that's why Satan, in his mind, that's why he's here. I'm going to do as much damage as possible to God's grand plan to reestablish his presence and to bring about reconciliation with human beings. That's why Satan comes. That's what his goal is, to derail, throw this whole thing off track. From Jesus' perspective, why does Satan come. By the way, he comes pretty much to Jesus in the form of Judas, the betrayer. The Roman guards, the authority of Rome. 
Jesus says, he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. In other words, Satan was coming to say to Jesus, Jesus, like, give it up. Give up the Father's plan. Like, the Father's plan has you going to the cross. Don't go to the cross. You've already become flesh and blood. Go back to the presence of the Father in heaven without going through with the cross, without going through taking the, the cost of sin and the penalty of sin in your life. Don't do that. That's why Satan was coming. Jesus is saying, like Satan thinks he's coming to derail. He's actually coming to confirm. Because of Jesus' obedience to the Father in heaven, we actually understand the relationship between Father and Son, that the, the plan of God to redeem and reconcile us to himself is actually unmovable. Don't you love that? In other words, what Satan had in mind, I'm going to derail this whole thing. Jesus says, hey, this is actually going to highlight the plan. What Satan said, this is going to bring destruction. I'm going to throw a rock into it. It's going to all be thrown off course. Jesus is saying, this is actually going to put a magnifying glass on the beauty of my relationship with the Father in heaven and the beauty of my plan of redemption and reconciliation. Listen, friends, I don't know what kind of power God has given Satan. And maybe there's some stuff in your life now that, you know, I don't know what kind of spiritual stuff is happening or kind of the damage that maybe Satan is doing. But what I do know is this, that what Satan intends for destruction, God can actually use for his own victory. Satan was coming to throw all off track. Jesus is saying, hey, Satan's coming. It's actually going to show just how on track it actually is. It's actually going to show just how much power I do have. It's actually going to show, it's going to highlight the beauty of God, not detract from it. And here's what I want you to hear. Maybe you're thinking that what's in your life right now will detract from the beauty of what God has for you. What if it's the exact opposite? What if that is actually what Satan intends? Like Satan may actually intend for you to be defeated. And God is saying, man, what Satan intends for defeat, God actually intends for there to be a magnifying glass on his goodness and his beauty and his glory. What if that's your story too? And friends, it is if you belong to Christ. It's pretty amazing. Well, again, we're kind of a little bit behind and we'll just mention a couple things from John chapter 15. Uh, John chapter 15. So uh, most people think, or some scholars think, uh, it's kind of a break between John 14 and 15. The last thing that John 14 says is, come now, let us leave. And so kind of the sense is that, again, they're right here. They've just finished their, the final Passover meal together. And it kind of seems like Jesus having this conversation with his disciples, literally as they walk out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Like this is almost him talking with them. Maybe some questions came up and disciples are asking some things. And so literally as Jesus walks toward his appointment with the cross, uh, here's where John 15 and 16 stand. John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. It's kind of an extended metaphor that Jesus uses. He says, I am the vine. I give life to the branches. We'll, again, dive into this a whole lot more next week. Growing up, we had some grape arbors. I think we had two or three of them where I grew up kind of in our lawn. And, and we had some apple trees, other kinds of fruit trees. And one thing I remember every spring is, and sometimes I would get that job, of, of pruning either the grape arbors or the, the apple trees. And you would prune them back, and they would kind of actually look more scrawny than when you pruned them before. But the reason that you did that is so that the sap, the nutrition of the tree, didn't simply produce lots of nice-looking leaves or more bark or more wood, but so that it actually produced fruit. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the true source of life. I give life to the branches that are attached to me. Now, now one thing I want to be clear, here's what he says. I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now, now what's Jesus? Is Jesus sort of harshly saying like, hey, man, like I'm going to give you a grade. And you're on the performance treadmill. And if you're not producing fruit, man, I am getting rid of, like, like, I, like, I'm going to judge you based on your fruit. And if you don't have sufficient output, you're a goner. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Jesus is saying this. He's capturing the natural relationship, the natural relationship between the branch and the vine. If you're an apple branch, apple branches don't say like, oh man, I got to produce fruit. I got to produce fruit to prove I'm part of the apple tree. Now, if they're part of the apple tree, if they're connected to the apple tree, they're naturally going to produce fruit. It's just kind of the natural outcome of it. An apple branch doesn't prove that it's part of the apple tree by bearing fruit. The fruit is a natural outcome that it's, of it being connected to the tree. So Jesus is not saying, man, like be on the tree. If anything, he's not saying that. What he is saying is a life of fruitfulness should be the natural outflow of finding life in Christ. That's what he's saying. If anything, he's saying like, hey, don't go out there like trying to produce. Don't go out there trying to perform. He's saying like, no, remain in the vine. If you're drawing life from Christ, if you're rooted and planted and shaped in him, fruitfulness will be the natural outcome of your life. We're going to go into that in a lot more detail next week. And actually verses 9 through 16 kind of re-explain verses 1 through 8. So it's kind of all packaged and we'll try to get through that all actually in two weeks because next week we have Accelerate Weekend. So we'll try to get through all of that in, in a couple of weeks. But let me just kind of like leave you with a couple of thoughts about remaining in Christ. There's eight different times between verses four through six where Jesus uses this word remain. It's kind of the Greek word meno. Some translations have abide. He says, remain in me. Let my word remain in you. Jesus is saying, for my truth to shape your life, you got to do more than just like, kind of like sip me. 
You got to do more than just dabble. You got to do more than just kind of like dip in and leave. Instead, the truth of who I am needs to permeate your being. You need to absorb it into yourself. In other words, our relationship with God is not like, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. And I probably won't learn anything new if I go to church. Like, like it, it's not that. Instead, there's something about gathering together. There's something about when we pray during the week. There's something about when we gather in a life group or a campus group. There's something about conversations that we have with one another during the week, prayer times that we have, diving in. There's something about that that just enables us not to simply, oh, I would have forgotten this little piece of truth otherwise. No, but that truth actually gets absorbed into your being. That the life of Christ and the truth of who he is actually begins to form and shape you so that fruit is produced. Maybe just a couple of ways that that works. If we remain in Christ, one of the fruits will be we'll love people who we would not otherwise love. Because as we focus on who Jesus loved, that he loves you, that he loves me. Uh, let me just break it to you. From God's perspective, you're not an overly lovable person. That's just, hopefully it's not too bad news. I'm just telling you. Like there's a righteous, holy God in heaven and you fall pretty far short of his glory. But the fact of the matter is his love is towards you. And as you absorb that, as you digest the fact that a holy God in heaven loves even a person like you, as, as that sap runs through your being, as you get absorbed and you digest, not just on the surface of it, as you digest the truth that the holy God in heaven loves you to the extent that he sent his son to die for you, friends, the natural fruit of that is you're going to start to love people you otherwise would not love. That's why churches can be messy. Sometimes it confuses me why people say, I don't go to a church because like, they're all a bunch of pain in the neck people. Well, of course they are. So are you. Like, 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 like no, no, no kidding. Like, what in the world do you expect? In fact, that's actually the reason the church is beautiful. It's because we're all a pain in the neck and Jesus loves pain in the neck people. Like he loves people who are messed up. And so we, we gather together because it actually cultivates the discipline of, of living in the vine and loving people we would not otherwise love. What about caring for people we otherwise wouldn't care about? You know, around here we often, you know, have giving focuses on places overseas, refugees from Afghanistan, people in Haiti recovering from an earthquake, people that often we'll never meet, that in one sense we could say, like, who gives a lick? Like, their well-being doesn't impact my well-being. Like, their life doesn't impact my life. Like, man, as long as they're out of the picture, I'm good to go. Let me create my own path and let me get as much fun out of life and, like, you know, paddle your own canoe, man. Like, hope your paddling goes well. My paddling is for me. Like, we could do that. But if the sap 
of life in Christ is flowing through us. We actually care for people whose well-being is never really going to matter to us in terms of our own well-being. But we care for them simply because God does. We care for them because we know that God loves people. We care for them even though our lives may never be directly impacted and we'll do fine whether they're cared for or not. We suddenly care for them because it's just what it looks like to remain in the vine. What about something about forgiving others? And forgiveness is a pretty big deal. And I'm just going to tell you something. You're not going to be able to forgive anything significant unless you're connected to the vine, unless you remain in Christ. Because if somebody wrongs you, the natural thing is, man, I want to, I want to give them what they have coming. Like, I want to pay them back. I want to take some vengeance. And that's just natural. But if you remain in the vine, if you remain connected to the person of Jesus who has forgiven you an eternal debt by which you should be eternally separated from God, and you're forgiven for that, and you're made right with the God of heaven through Christ giving you his righteousness, then you're going to be empowered to forgive then the fruit of forgiveness is going to be hanging off your branch because that fruit of forgiveness comes from the vine and there's a whole lot of forgiveness in that vine. Wouldn't you agree? We could go on. We'll talk next week more about just obedience to Christ and how that's a natural result of remaining in the vine. Which Jesus saying, saying, hey, man, as the Holy Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit's going to connect you to the vine. Remain in me. Absorb the truth of who God is. Digest it. Don't simply know it. Don't simply check it off. Don't simply let it be a bunch. No, let the life of God, let the life of Christ flow from the vine into your branch to produce fruits like forgiveness and generosity and kindness and love and care. May we be connected to the vine. I'm going to invite Laren out, and he's just going to lead us in this final refrain of um, uh, Christ alone. And just to remind ourselves as we leave this place, man, may our prayer be, may the reality of our lives be that we're connected to the vine. May we remain in him. Let's not just dip. Let's not just brush shoulders with. Let's absorb, let's digest, let's live in the deep truth of the beauty of Christ. Should we do that? Let's stand and sing this as a statement of affirmation and prayer. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul, this cornerstone. This solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of
No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. God, we don't stand in our own power. We don't create our own fruit. We don't create our own life. We stand in you. We remain in you. We abide in you. May your Holy Spirit shape and form us in the truth of the gospel. May our lives draw sap from Christ. May that which gives us life be your life. Thank you that your presence continues with us that you are in the glorious presence of the Father in heaven, that your Holy Spirit indwells us, and through your Holy Spirit, you continue to be present with us. And as we remain in you, and you in us through your Spirit, may our lives be fruitful. May we walk in obedience to you. We ask that in the name of Jesus and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Hey, our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless and have a wonderful day.